what are those things that cause us to have trust issues? What, what are those things? What, what are the things that really cause us to, to not be able to trust as we should? Maybe it's people. We have a hard time trusting people. And if we're not careful, those trust issues that I've already said can kind of bleed over or leak over into our relationship with God, and we find it difficult. Can I just share some things by way of introduction that, that maybe we should think about today? And maybe some of these things, maybe all of them, will resonate with you, and you will find yourself in these things, and you'll, you'll be able to identify some barriers that, that might be in your own heart and life that make it very difficult for you to trust others and maybe even to trust God. You know, one of the first things I think about when I think of barriers like this that, that life has a way of causing would be fear, fear. Some of us fall short of applying scripture to our life as we read it and hear it taught or hear it preached. And the thing that keeps us from, from applying scripture to our life is we are afraid of what may happen or what may not happen as a result of the application of scripture. And we find ourselves wrestling with that, and we find ourselves just, just kind of uh, trying to, to work through those things and, and just trying to, to figure it all out in our heads, and we wait for that moment when we don't have any more fear before we apply the Scripture. And what happens to us is we never really get around to applying Scripture because fear grips us and fear cripples us if we're not careful. So maybe our relationship with God is suffering today as far as trusting Him because we are afraid to do so. And a lot of times that has something to do with what has happened to us in our life. Maybe someone in our life has caused us great fear. And so we have a hard time trusting and being at peace. I want to encourage you to find healing for that today in Jesus and to move on from that in victory and to know that no matter how badly someone else has hurt you or disappointed you, that God has never done that and will never do that. He is completely trustworthy. He will never give you reason to not trust him. Maybe we fear that if we submit to Scripture and we apply it to our lives, that things will just fall apart because, after all, we know best for our lives. And maybe that is due to another relational issue that we've had in our lives where we found ourselves trusting someone and then our life did fall apart. Maybe things they said, things they did caused our life to just become a wreck. And maybe some of us here today are still struggling with that, recovering from that, healing from that. But just know that because of who God is, that you can always trust him and that your life is not going to fall apart if you trust him, even if others have caused this in your life. You see, it is the exact opposite that will cause our lives to be a wreck. And that is if we disregard what God has said, if we dismiss what God has said, if we decide not to trust what God has said, that's when things really fall apart. Trust God. He's worthy of that. Maybe our families of origin, as we grew up and were raised in a particular family, have caused us to really have trust issues. And we're struggling with that today. We bear the scars of that and we're still reeling from that and maybe we're trying to heal. Maybe things were out of control in your family as you were brought up. Perhaps you felt helpless and in some cases even victimized. 
And so now, as an adult perhaps, who's no longer living in that environment, it's hard for you, it's hard for me to let go of that control of our life for fear of what might happen. Because we certainly wouldn't want to return to those horrible, horrible things that were our reality for so long. And so, that barrier stands between us and God today, and it's very difficult for us to let go, to let go of control of our life, and to trust Him with control. Or perhaps you're here this morning, and you have suffered a horrible betrayal. Have you ever had anybody betray you? Has that ever happened to you? It didn't feel very good, did it? It hurt pretty deeply. And maybe you're carrying that hurt with you today, and emotionally, it's just ruined you. And, and as you look at it, you're like, I don't know if I can ever trust anybody again because the depth of this betrayal has hurt me so badly. And if you're not careful, what happens? Well, the same thing. Your relationship with God can, can suffer because of that anxiety and fear from human relationships. And often people will not trust God as they should because they've been betrayed by someone they trusted before. Or perhaps a distorted image of God is in between you and trusting God today. You haven't allowed his word to really shape and form your view of him. But you've allowed other things to maybe words of others or opinions of others or, or life circumstances to somehow give you a distorted view or image of who God is. And maybe that's made you fearful of him in a wrong way to where you don't trust him or don't want to commune with him and follow what he says. But if we allow his self-revelation to form and to shape our perspective of him and who he really is, we will find him to be trustworthy and loving and gracious and kind and not only knowledgeable of what is best for us, but desirous of what is best for us and then in his sovereignty working out what is best for us. And as we cultivate that view of God and we submit to that view of God, we will find ourselves capable of trusting that God who is the God of the Bible. So today we want to talk about the Bible. We want to ask that question, what is the Bible? And we want to answer the question with the fact that the Bible is inspired, it is inerrant, and it is infallible. And as we believe these critical truths, right, of Christianity as it relates to the scripture, we will cultivate a trust in God. These things are indispensable. They are absolutely essential to a proper understanding of scripture, and they can have a powerful impact on our lives because they will nurture a culture of trust between us and God, which is critical. However, those things that work against our ability to trust are the things that we need to deal with and to make sure that we have God's grace to endure so that we can build trust with him. These things, the three I words that are in front of us today, are like the three legs of a stool. You take one away and what happens? The thing falls over. All three of these things are critical. And so we must understand them as they relate to one another, and we must believe them. It is critical that we pass these things down to the generations who are coming up, that this legacy of belief and faith, 
This legacy that is based on a proper understanding of the Word of God is absolutely critical to the preservation of authentic Christianity for the generations to come. We can't overemphasize these things, and we certainly cannot give them enough time. Now, we're going to see in these things that if people who don't hold to these views very firmly, they're going to make room for all kinds of deviancy and error in their belief systems as well as in the way that they live. You see, we're really just one compromising decision away from complete ruin spiritually. But if we will hold to, believe, and maintain a proper view of Scripture, it will help us. It will defend us. And so I want to take the time to break these things down, allow these things to sink deeply into your thought process and into your heart, commit to them, and then also be dedicated to passing them on as a spiritual legacy. So first of all, let's define some terms. The first one I want to deal with is inspiration. What is the Bible? It is the inspired word of God. In fact, we read a passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, which we will come back to later in our study, that spells that out. It is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. The actions of God leading to the writing, the preservation, and the collection of his words to his people into the Bible. That is inspiration. The English word inspiration comes from the Latin word meaning to breathe in. Inspiration then is the influence of the Holy Spirit upon individuals for the purpose of producing an authoritative record of persons, teaching, and events. As indicated in the biblical explanation, inspiration is a divine human encounter whereby God reveals truth. It is a message from God and of God, as well as through persons and for persons. The Bible is divine in its inception. It is a record of God's self-disclosure as truth and as a source of all truth. Its special revelation is is a disclosure of truth that humans could not comprehend through ordinary thought processes. Also, the Bible is human in its mediation. God revealed himself to persons he chose. They declared God's attitude toward his relations with, his purposes for, his people, and his world. Inspiration came into the experiences of real men and women with real personalities and problems. A climax to that divine human encounter is the fact that the scripture is focused on the divine human person of Jesus Christ. That's according to the Holman Bible Dictionary. And the book that you have in front of you today, whether what form it is, doesn't matter. If you have a copy of Scripture today, you have the product of God using people to write His Word. We have it in its preserved form. We don't have it in its originally given, inspired form. But what you have, as it is faithful to the manuscripts, it truly is a representation of the preserved Word of God. And we can say with confidence that it has come from His inspired Word. He didn't inspire people, but he did inspire his word. And he gave us his inspired word through spirit-empowered people. So what we have in front of us as the scripture today, as the Bible today, is something that has come from God. Does that mean anything really to us today? What does that mean to you? That you have the preserved word of God in front of you, that this truly has come from God. Have you ever received a gift from a really, really important person? Think about it. How did you steward that gift 
What did that gift mean to you? I'll, I'll never forget one of the things that we did in Maryland at, at the church where I was the executive pastor is we had a special day where we recognized uh, a number of first responders, including a significant number of uh, law enforcement. And I remember I was thinking it was my job to put that day together, to plan that day and to execute that day. And I remember thinking, what could I give to these people that would be meaningful to them and, and remind them of their visit to, to our church? What, what could I do? And I began, I, said, I don't even know who all these people are going to be. How can I ever come up with a gift? And I, I began to do some research on, on what uh, firefighters and military and, and even law enforcement parts of their culture and how they would recognize certain things. And, and I came across the concept of a challenge coin. Have you ever heard that term? Who's heard of a challenge coin before? Okay. So I thought, I'm going to have a challenge coin minted just for the day. It's going to have the name of the church on there. It's going to have a recognition on the other side for their service as a first responder. We're going to have these men and ladies come up to the front. We're going to recognize them. I'm going to shake their hand. And as I do so, I'm going to transfer to them one of these challenge coins. It's pretty popular practice. Uh, in this day. It's been so for a long time. A lot of times a president will have his own challenge coin and he will present that to special guests at the White House and wherever he goes. And this is a cool thing. So I'm doing this and these people are really, I could see it's connecting to them. And they treasured that challenge coin. But I tell you what was meaningful to me in that whole service. At the end, we had a uh, fire chief there in, in the uh, service. He came up to me after he said, you know, you blessed us and you gave us a challenge coin and I want to give you the one that I carry with me all the time. And he shook my hand and he gave me his challenge coin that he had been given by the fire department. I don't know how long he had had it, but it was meaningful to him and he wanted me to have it. And I've never forgotten that. I have it in my office to this day. That meant something to me. That's a treasure to me. And, and there aren't a whole lot of people who've had that experience, right? Look, guys, whatever that treasure is, whatever that meaningful gift is that you've been given, we have something that is far more meaningful and far more valuable than anything this world has to offer like that. We have the treasure of the Word of God. And so I want you to think about how many of us really related to this treasure in, in a way that it's worthy of over the course of the last week. Did we get into it? Did we read it because we just couldn't wait to hear what God was going to say to us? You know, there's a lot of talk going around today that people are receiving words from God, right? Words from the Lord. Well, listen, you want to hear God speak, read his word out loud, okay? You're going to hear him speak. That's where you hear what God has to say. But do we really believe that? Does it motivate us at all to get into it, to study it, to know it, to memorize it, to meditate on it, to live it out? Oh, I'm telling you, when we get a hold of the doctrine of inspiration and we believe firmly that this book came from God and allow that to shape and form the relationship that we have with it, we're on to something. We're on to something powerful. Well, this word, because it comes from God, is also what we call inerrant. And I want to talk to you about inerrancy for just a few moments. The word of God is without error. Wayne Grudem in his theology wrote it this way. He said, it's a belief in the total truthfulness and reliability of God's words. Jesus said, your word is truth in John 17. This inerrancy isn't just in passages that speak about salvation, but also applies to all historical and scientific statements as well. It is not only accurate in matters related to faith and practice, but it is accurate and without error regarding any statement, period. 
God's word without error. You see, because we believe it's God-breathed and inspired, we can say we believe it's inerrant because it comes from God. There's only one source that, ha- that can make that claim, and that is God. The third I word that we have today in our study is that of infallibility. The scriptures are infallible. Because they come from God, they contain no error. They contain no error, and they are also incapable of error because they come from God. They cannot fail on any level at any time. To be infallible means that something is incapable of failing and therefore is permanently binding and cannot be broken. Now, this is critical. This is absolutely critical, especially in the culture that we live right now. God needs his people, and this world needs God's people to remain this committed and this dedicated to the binding authority of Scripture. God's Word, as given to us, truly is inspired. It's truly inerrant, and it's truly infallible. That means that what God gives us in His Word, in any part, is truly the same in characteristic. And because of that, it continues over time with its binding authority. God says to us that human life is sacred. That doesn't change just because culture changes. When God says that he created them male and female as gender and he assigned to each human being a gender at birth and that was his sovereign will, that doesn't change just because culture changes. Why? Because God's word is infallible. It doesn't uh, pass away. It doesn't change. It's inalterable. It is truly without error in its giving, and it's, it's never not going to be true. It can't contain error, and it truly is without error, and it's binding and cannot be broken. If it were able to be changed and never binding and could be broken, then it would cease to be the very word of God. And so we have to hold to these things because it truly gives us, as the church, an anchor to truth in an ever-changing culture. And it truly enables us and empowers us and motivates us to go upstream in a downstream world. And we must remain committed to this. We can't let what we believe about the scriptures waver in any way. Any compromising opinion, decision, or conclusion will lead to shipwreck. We must remain committed. Let's talk about some inerrant proofs then, or evidence for inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility. This will simply focus on Scripture. We're just going to see what the Scripture has to say about these matters. Obviously, for inspiration, we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, the verse that we already read. This scripture is God-breathed or inspired, and it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And then the result is that the servant or person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is God-breathed, inspired. What about a passage like 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 2? The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. You see, those who were mouthpieces for God realized that God was speaking through them. Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 12, they made their hearts like a rock so as not to obey the law or the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. The scriptures testifying to their own origin. 
And then, of course, 2 Peter chapter 1. No prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Inspiration. God breathed. God truly is the origin of his word. What about inerrancy, the fact that it contains no error? Well, Jesus testifies to this in John 17. Sanctify them by thy truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus refers to that word as being true, without error. Scientific accuracy as well. When Jesus has the discourse here in Matthew 19, and he is speaking of the idea of gender assignment at birth, and he breaks it down as to what God did in this original creation and where we came from, giving credence, of course, to the creation narrative from Genesis. Jesus also in his testimony believes the scriptures to be reliable and he, he manifests that by some of these things that he talks about that the Old Testament speaks of, like in Matthew chapter 24. Notice this with me. He says, as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, here's Jesus testifying to the authenticity of the Genesis narrative and the record there concerning the flood and Noah. And he's giving authenticity to it because he's quoting it as fact. Before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. So Jesus then authenticates the fact that there truly was an ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. So this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Jesus giving authenticity to Old Testament scripture. He believes the scriptural record is reliable. What about chapter 12 and verse 40? He speaks of Jonah being in the belly of this great fish for three days and three nights. So the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Now these are two examples of where critics and cynics concerning the scripture will run to. They will try to say that these are myths or fables or some sort of hyperbole that God used in the Old Testament to make some kind of a point. But Jesus, in a very literal way, in his own teaching in the New Testament, refers back to these two significant events as if they were truly factual. He gives no room for any kind of a symbolic interpretation, but only a literal one. So Jesus believes in the reliability of the biblical record, and he testifies to such in his own teaching. And then, of course, God's character affirms inerrancy, like a verse in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. In the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. And what about Hebrews 6 and verse 18? So that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. It is impossible for God to lie. Truly, the character and nature of God affirms inerrancy. And finally, what about infallibility? What does the Bible say about this? Well, truly, the Bible stands. It is infallible. As Matthew 5 says, that not even the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. John chapter 10 and verse 35, if he called those whom the word of God came to gods and the scripture cannot be broken. 
2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. So we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. Some translations say we have this more sure word of prophecy. You do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dismal place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This prophetic word strongly confirmed stands the test of time, truly cannot and will not fail. Psalm chapter 19 and verse 7, the instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. Chapter 12 and verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times. And then Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. The word of God is infallible because it comes from God and it contains no error. I don't know that anyone here this morning is going to dispute these things. I hope that all of us will say that we intellectually assent to this teaching about Scripture. And while it's not exhaustive or comprehensive, it certainly is a good dose of these three things that are critical, essential to a proper view of Scripture. I want to ask you the question this morning, so what? These things are easy to put in creeds and find a good place in statements of faith, right? We look for these kinds of things when we're going to make a decision perhaps about a church. We want to know what does that church believe about Scripture? Now, I don't want to demean that or discredit that. I think that's critical. And I think that any church that doesn't have a proper view of Scripture is not a church that's worth attending. But I want to say this to you. You can have everything proper in your statement of faith and in your creeds and still live like the devil. You can believe all the right stuff about God and you can believe all the right stuff about his word, but if it doesn't have an impact on your life and if you don't, if you don't allow all of that to shape and to form the way you live, who cares if you have all the theological points written out on paper or on your website correctly? Who cares? It is important, church, that we allow the things that we believe about Scripture to affect the way that we live. I want to close by giving you two things that I think can answer this question, so what? Number one, based on the belief of these things, the Bible should be our final authority. I've said it to you many times. The single most important thing that you can ever know is what God thinks about anything. And he gives to us in his word what he thinks about a lot of things. I like this excerpt from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. There in Article 2. You'll see, Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires and embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. There's the answer to so what. The, the theology that we believe should make this difference in our life. 
It truly should be our final authority. We, we truly should believe God's instruction and all that it affirms. We should obey God's command in all that it requires, and we should embrace as God's pledge in all that it promises. That's how this should affect the way that we live. So, I want you to consider that as culture continues to test the belief system of the church, are we going to continue believing as God's instruction all that Scripture affirms, or will we waver? I don't know if we know the answer to that question yet, because I'm not sure that the heat has been turned up as much as it possibly can. But I will say this, if we commit and anchor to these things about Scripture and we allow them to, to affect the way that we live, even if there's a cost to it, we will be well prepared as that heat continues to be turned up. How about obeying as God's command in all that Scripture requires? Are we living there today? Or is God, is God revealing to us as we go through this study areas that are not consistent with the final authority of Scripture where we've decided to just change a little bit because what God says is just a little bit too uncomfortable for me. Some of the most disheartening times as a pastor have been when, when people of God have come for counsel and advice on what is going on in their life. And usually after assessing those things, I'll begin to think about how is it that we can bring theology to bear on what this person is telling me is going on. Sometimes those events involve conflict resolution. And I'm just using this for sake of illustration today. So conflict resolution. Well, God has some pretty good rules for that. And he spelled out how we're supposed to handle those conflicts and how we're supposed to resolve them. And he's given us a lot of literature on that. There have been many times where I have given that particular theological view from God's word that, you know, this is what you need to do to resolve this conflict. And a lot of times it involves some pain, some very hard conversations, and given that instruction to people. And there have been a lot of times where they've said, Pastor, pray for me. This is going to be hard. I'm going to do it. But then there are other times, the disheartening ones, where people are like, yeah, I know what God says, but whatever they put in there is something from their own experience. They think it's a good enough excuse to, to not obey God's instruction uh, or, or to find ourselves in obedience and all that it requires as God's command. Because their situation in life is tough and they feel like that equals an exception. Don't do that. Don't play loose with scripture. Don't look for exceptions that aren't there. If God speaks clearly, do it as he requires it. What about embracing as God's pledge all the promises of Scripture? Some of you may need to do that today. You may be struggling because of difficulties and challenges and disappointments, I don't know, hurts. And you need God's promises today. You need to read them and claim them and allow them to be real in your life. Do that for your own refreshment. The second and final thing in the last couple of minutes is this. So what? Well, the teaching of the Bible commands our implicit trust and unreserved acceptance. Implicit trust and unreserved acceptance. Notice a couple of quotes again. Being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching. 
no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God than its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. It's completely reliable. It commands our implicit trust and unreserved acceptance. Holy Scripture, as the inspired Word of God, witnessing authoritatively to Jesus Christ, may properly be called infallible and inerrant. These negative terms have a special value, for they explicitly safeguard crucial positive truths. Infallible signifies the quality of neither misleading nor being misled, and so safeguards in categorical terms the truth that neither or that the Holy Spirit or that the Holy Scripture is a sure, safe, and reliable rule and guide in all matters. Similarly, inerrant signifies the quality of being free from all falsehood or mistake, and so safeguards the truth that Holy Scripture is entirely true and trustworthy in all its assertions. So we started with trust. We're going to end with trust today, circling right back to it, because truly it is the critical component. You can say you believe all this stuff in your intellect, but if you don't trust God, it's not going to have any effect at all. So are we truly trusting God today? Or is there a barrier because of our human experience, perhaps, that has caused us to not implicitly trust God and in an unreserved way accept everything that he has said as binding and authoritative in our lives? If there's something that's outside of that realm today, why don't we work on that? Why don't we submit that to God? Why don't we give in and allow God to have his way and accomplish his will in us because of our obedience to Scripture? If you're struggling with trust today, if you're struggling with that, let me encourage you to seek the healing that you need from past hurts. Talk to one of our pastors, Pastor Steve and I would be happy to talk to you about this. If we need to refer you to someone else who's more qualified and ready to help you by way of counseling, we will do that. But if you're struggling with trust issues, receive from God and his grace everything that you need and take steps of growth today so that you'll go from just believing the right things of Scripture to actually living them out for the glory of God.